Welcome to the New Stack at Scale podcast, a show about developing and managing elastic and dynamic services and systems. I'm your host, Alex Williams, here with Frederick Paul, a longtime tech journalist and now editor-in-chief of New Relic. And so this show really is about this new world of scale-out architectures, and New Relic is really a big part of that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about New Relic and, you know, and, and what you guys are up to? Thanks, Alex. Uh, as always, New Relic is really excited to sponsor the New Stack at Scale podcast. Uh, it's a great show addressing important topics in interesting ways. If you're not familiar with us, New Relic APM, uh, Application Performance Monitoring, and the rest of our software analytics products help thousands and thousands of customers consistently improve their software performance every day and all day. If you want to see how the New Relic Software Analytics Cloud is changing the game for modern businesses and modern software, go to, wait for it, newrelic.com. Great to be here, Alex. And joining us today, we have Tori Wilt of uh, New Relic. Hey, Tori. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? Good. And we have Charity Majors, who I can now say is co-founder of Honeycomb.io. Yes. The topic for today is really about velocity. It's, it's in, in line with the conference that's coming up. But it's also a symbolic term that's, you know, that I think has you know, changed quite a bit in its meaning in this application development and management space over the past few years. And Charity really has been at the forefront, I think, of you know, where application development, or really the management of the application is going. She was, at, uh, was one of the engineers at Parse, and then Parse got acquired by Facebook, and she's been doing some very interesting work there, and now uh, has Honeycomb. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us, uh, Charity. And we have Tori, who is a developer advocate at New Relic, and I know is very involved in the Velocity Conference and can speak to, you know, kind of the issues around Velocity that you know, you're seeing in your customer base um, at New Relic. I really just want to get the conversation started. I'm really curious, why don't we start just at the top, Charity? Why don't you tell us about, about Honeycomb and, you know, what it is you're trying to accomplish, perhaps provide some context about you know, your time at Facebook, you know, relative to this new effort that you have underway. Yeah, absolutely. This is so exciting. This is the very first time that I've gotten to talk about Honeycomb with the, with the new name. Thank you for having me on. So, yeah, so actually, uh, Honeycomb, the, the nut of the problem that we're trying to build and track is really deeply intertwined with the time that I spent at Facebook post-acquisition, uh, when Parse was acquired by Facebook, we were using a lot of, you know, what were considered best practices uh, for monitoring and visibility tools at the time. You know, we had Nodulous, we had Ganglia, uh, we had instrumentation. We were actually using New Relic way back in the early, early days when it was a Ruby gem that was, it's come a long way. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, and as a platform, you know, we would have our overall graphs for important metrics like latency, uh, request per second. But as a platform, um, nobody cares how the platform is performing. They care about how their app is performing on the platform. You know, so we would we would we had this long fat tail of very complicated. Um, individual distinct reports that we were getting every day, just a flood of them. These people were passionate about building their mobile apps on Parse. And passionate people uh, try to use platforms in very creative 
and un unusual and unique ways. Like the greatest sources of human of chaos in the galaxy are humans, right? <laughs> so our on-call engineers were just they would do their best to repro and to track down and to get back and give these customers, you know, a quality response or figure out why they were having the problems they were having. Um, but we kind of hit a tipping point, you know, around 100,000, literally 100,000 apps. We couldn't keep up because um, the time that it took to debug any one of these individuals, because they're all different, right? You're mm. starting from scratch for every single one, trying to figure out what their experience is, whether it's valid or whether they just forgot to turn on their fucking Wi-Fi, you know, like, because half of them are, you know, and so your engineers get really burned out um, when they're trying to track down things that are very difficult and time-consuming. So, you know, we get um, acquired by Facebook, um, and one of the first things that we did um, was we basically airlifted our internal metrics into the Facebook Scuba system. Facebook has Scuba and ODS. Um, ODS is, is, is counters, time series, right? And Scuba is for, um, it uses structured data, but you don't have to have, um, you don't have to have schemas, you don't have to uh, predefine uh, the queries that you want to be able to run. Uh, all you have to do is dump all your data in there and then sample in order to make it efficient. And this was like just literally life-changing for us because we had the ability to drop in. If we couldn't figure out what the root cause was, we just start dropping in key value pairs and you could immediately search on them. You know, you could aggregate on any dimension and it was real time and interactive. It was amazing. Like our mean time to like figuring out whether a developer had a real problem to what that problem was to the advice that we could give them for how to turn it around went from somewhere between hours and impossible to like, you know, three to 10 minutes, which is a tractable, you know, pace for a back-end software engineer or a front-end software engineer or an ops person to deal with, you know, dozens or hundreds of these reports in a week. So when I decided to leave Facebook, and full disclosure here, I hate monitoring. <laughs> I hate monitoring, I hate graphics, I hate, I hate analytics. So I, I'm coming from a place not of love, but of hate. Like, <laughs> like I, I started surveying the landscape as an ops person who's not an application-focused engineer. I'm like, you know, I never want to set up Nagios again. Uh, <laughs> what, what's out there um, that is like Scuba that I can use? And I realized um, that there wasn't anything. So that was the genesis of what we decided about. And you, could, you guys can look up the Facebook has published a white paper. Like this is not proprietary information. And what we're doing is not completely building out what Scuba does, you know, but, the, but it's, it's modeled on it. Uh, we want pe people to be able, we want to incentivize them to um, capture more detail about their systems from top to bottom, you know, um, separate, not se separate the, you know, the deep database and introspection from the system level metrics from the application level metrics. We want to, and I want to be super clear about this, like we are focused on real-time exploration of arbitrary like dimensions in real time. Um, we see ourselves not as competing with the APM space, but as really augmenting it and tying it together with, with all the other different monitoring platforms that are out there, like the Baron Schwartz's, you know, the deep dive in Vivid Cortex, 
love them. Datadog, love them. PagerDuty, Pingdom, New Relic, you guys are all, you know, huge leaders in this space. And we think that there's a ground that is really challenging to navigate between all of those really powerful tools, literally due to how the data is laid down on disk. And I'll, I'll stop there because as we were pre-gaming, we were discussing how this is this is not a deep dive into backend like storage technologies. This is talking about metrics and velocity. That's, that's my intro. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting um, because I, I think from the New Relic perspective, we are trying to solve a similar problem with our Insights um, product. And this is came it. out of what our CEO was frustrated with our own products going, give me this information. And he would have to make a request to a team and wait a day to get the information. And as you're saying, humans are really creative and it's like, yeah, that's what I literally asked for, but it wasn't what I wanted. And I really don't know that until I see the results back. So how important it is to be able to query in real time, get some real information back and go, oh, I need to tweak that a bit. And then iterate so, on that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting space and it's fun to be a part of it. Uh, the velocity piece of it um, keeps us in shape maybe as a way to think about it is um, we're always trying. There are new technologies out there. It's a wonderful time to be a developer. Um, with all this modularization, it gets so much easier to choose the right tool for the job. So you're not married to one particular technology or framework or something. There's a lot of different pieces that you can pick up. Um, yes. It can be overwhelming, but I think you just have to have the right attitude about it. I'm going to surf this wave, right? <laughs> and I think that one of the reasons that New Relic has been so incredibly uh, successful is because you guys, you worked so hard from the very beginning on the initial experience, you know, reducing the friction, gem install, and suddenly magic. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know? you're getting data. Right. You guys did that so well. A lot of people spend years developing the backend stuff before they start thinking about, oh, how do we actually make this easy to use? You were mentioning, Fred, you are mentioning uh, the engineering day you went to. Uh, do, the, do these kind of topics service at a... Well, well sure they do. And I mean, I think that when we start talking about velocity, there's a lot of elements involved here in terms of, of moving fast and, and the reasons that we need to do that from competitive pressures to market pressures to changes in technology and, and, and the challenges of scaling, you know, requires a lot of velocity for lack of a better word. And one of the challenges that I've been interested in is how do you make your engineering teams work faster and be more productive. And that, that's something that I'd be interested in sort of talking about here a little bit. That's something that New Relic spends a lot of time thinking about. And we've actually, in the midst of publishing a, a series of blogs about some of the techniques that, that we use and trying to share them to hopefully be helpful uh, across other organizations. Charity, who's worked at, at, uh, at Parse and then something like Facebook, which is now quite large, and now you have your own startup, you know, how do you make your people and, and yourself as productive and as fast as you can possibly be? That is an amazing question. And I'm so happy you asked it. Uh, I have so many thoughts and feelings. 
please feel free to cut me off if I'm rambling for too long because I get very, um, very um, excited about this topic. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I noticed uh, working at Facebook that I had never really seen before um, was that the best software engineers um, in the world that I had ever gotten to work with um, spent less time writing code and more time watching the effects of it. You know, they would spend half their time writing software and half their time looking through Scuba and ODS and, you know, upstream. And like, part of this is because when you're dealing with such a large code base, it becomes the human mind cannot comprehend it. It cannot comprehend what ripple effects you're going to have or what unexpected effects you're going to have or what someone else has done at the exact same time as you and got shipped at the same time and you had no idea because they are in a different time zone. And so instrumentation and visibility and engineers getting used to this not being a thing that you go to in time of emergency, but a thing that you use to augment your development process is going to be key. Like this is what makes software engineers so much more powerful. And this is, you know, in so many ways, an extension of the DevOps movement. And well, yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were saying that. It's like this sounds like DevOps to me. Yeah, but like the old, the old model was, uh, you know, software engineers they they write code, they push it, they have tests, you know, and then something breaks or something. There's a performance regression. Ops goes and looks at graphs generates graphs, asks the engineers to look at them, but they never really get that literate in reading the graphs and they don't generate their own graphs and they aren't thinking from the perspective of, what do I need to see in order to make sure that what I expected to happen will happen? And I see like the next generation of analytics tools as, um, and I'm so glad that you're writing blog posts. I wanna write a lot of these blog posts too, just like, explaining to people writing code without watching your instrumentation and your and your visibility stuff is like a pilot who literally doesn't have the tools to see where they're going to land mm -hmm. you know you can you can do this you can kind of you know feel your way and you get just, just for for our podcast audience yeah. charity was uh, holding her hands over her eyes over my eyes <laughs> like now typing with one hand i'm like you know Developers get so good at doing this that they don't realize <laughs> that, that there's another way. <laughs> and I feel like it's what we're trying to do. Like all of us here and so many other people in the industry are like, this would be so much more powerful if you are um, tying this into your everyday, every hour workflows looking at what you're doing. Exactly, yeah. We, we talk about being proactive during deploys, the whole thing about you know, you, you don't, you're not whistling past the graveyard and you don't want to think about your code or your application or your service as something that's fragile, you know, like yeah. you don't want to break stuff, but the only way to get really um, strong is to break stuff. So it's the irony of it, but you know, chaos monkey, you have to just embrace that life of we're going to deploy want. something and we're going to be proactive about watching it because we want to catch it before our users do. So we're really paying attention to what's happening. And like you're saying, you write, you write the code and you have to really pay it. You have to think about how it appears to the user and all the variables 
that go into that. And there are a lot of strategies like, you know, canarying and automatic rollbacks and graceful degradation and stuff that are becoming, you know, this hybrid, you know, developer operations skill set. But also, I think it's super important to emphasize that people shouldn't only be looking at these graphs when there's something wrong or when they predict something scary might happen. Because if you don't know what, what it looks like, and, and it's so complicated, right? You'll have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of metrics in a decently sized system. If you don't know what things look like when it's going well, then you don't actually have the ability to spot outliers, right? Because at any given time in a complex system, there are things that aren't working, especially if you're a platform. You can't look at error rates because not all of your 500s are gonna be your fault, right? Sometimes people sending you malformed data. You know, you have to understand what your system looks like when it's normal, when it's somewhat degraded, when it's completely down, um, in order to be able to debug effectively. So, so uh, these outliers, and we, we, I'm hearing more people talk about outliers more and more, um, especially as kind of, you know, new technologies become more popular. Um, people are wondering, well, what are the outliers, right? How do you think about managing outliers? And I'm curious, Tori, from your guys' perspective too, about how do you think about outliers? I mean, and, I mean, maybe thinking through too about like, you know, how you guys thought about managing outlier environments when you're at Facebook. So outliers are not always bad, right? I mean, um, it's a, bad's a moral term, so I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes um, outliers are incredibly valuable to you because they help you understand um, your cliffs and your outer limits, right? Um, the people who are doing unusual things with your platform mm -hmm. um, will often they're your little tiny chaos monkeys. And so it's important to not just like um, shut them down, uh, but to like understand them, what are they trying to do? Mm -hmm. um, is this a failure in our documentation? You know, is this a failure in us uh, communicating best practices? Or are they trying to do something that we were, really weren't designed for and we either need to think about, can we optimize for their use case are there enough people out there to optimize for that use case? Or should we just gently suggest to them that they should do something else or go somewhere else? You know, because that's always, you cannot solve everybody's problem. You just can't. I, I do think that when you're talking about outliers in the metric sense, um, I, I often will tell people like percentile buckets, quantiles, all these things, very important. Averages, Averages cover up so many sins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. True that. You, you relic people, I'm sure, can talk a lot about that. Like when I'm telling people how to test their load test their databases, I'm like, quantile is great, 99th percentile great, 99.999th percentile great. You need to look at the max because the max, the people who are actually hitting the maximum of whatever it is you're trying to measure, that's where the most information lies. What I thought was really interesting too, before we got on the um, outlier issue was, you were talking about not just looking at this data when an emergency happens or when a problem occurs. And, and that's something that, that we've seen at New Relic as well, is that some of our best customers have their New Relic dashboards up on giant screens in their offices 24 seven. Yeah, and they're, the you know, they're not just, oh, oh, we have a problem, let's look. It's like this is a steady state reporting on everything that they're doing in real time at all times. Yes. And I think 
whether or not you actually have a dashboard up on your wall and whether or not you stare at it, that mindset I think is really important. Yeah. 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 I, I just want to echo that because we've seen that a lot of that is uh, cultural transformation. So we see uh, Yellow Pages Canada, they talked a whole lot about um, they had a culture where the IT department would take months to provision a server and it would take X number of months to get a bug fixed. And they, they just said, this is not working. And a part of that transformation is real-time information, uh, screens everywhere. Um, everyone in the building is responsible for the quality of what goes out to the customers. And that really, uh, that's a big part of it is being aware of it and everybody taking ownership of it. Yes, I could not agree more. Like, I really believe in the vision of um, software engineers being responsible for their own software. So there's like an ideal world that, you know, it's a, it's a platonic ideal of a world that, you know, we talk about it. Um, nobody should feel bad if they're not there yet. <laughs> it, 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 it's a thing to try and work towards because it uh, flushes so many uh, procedural and um, um, technical education and just it, it brings your developers up to a So you're saying that, you know, they shouldn't feel bad if they're as not as advanced as another developer? God, no, no, no. Like, I don't want to shame people who are not, right. you know, when I'm talking to software engineers about the importance of operations, I'm like, you shouldn't feel bad. Like, nobody taught you this in college. The culture has not been teaching you this your, your entire career. But let me tell you, you should want these skills. You should want this visibility into your code. Like, people, you will blow people's minds with how much more powerful you are when you know how to look at these metrics and understand what's going on, and you can predict problems before they happen. It's like you have Jedi mind powers. Like, I see this with, you know, the best software engineers that I've worked with. They're the ones who spend the most time instrumenting, thinking through possible consequences, thinking not about what's going to break, but like, how do I, how can I even understand this thing that I'm releasing? And that's like a superpower. And nobody should feel bad if they aren't there yet. Very few people are there yet. Um, and most of us in operations are like so thrilled if you want, <laughs> if you want to learn these things and like partner with us. Like the DevOps movement for the past, you know, a uh, few years has done a really great job of telling ops people get better at being developers, right? Unit tests, you know, be better coders. And yes, you know, message received, great job. And I feel like we're getting to the point where we're starting to be like, all right, software engineers, you too can be better at your jobs by like learning some of these skill sets that are traditionally associated with operations, visibility and observability and debugging and like thinking about consequences and, and deploys and rollbacks. So Tori, how are you here? How, how are you seeing people learn this? Is, are, you, are people putting their heads in the sand? I imagine they're not. I imagine that people no. are pretty open, pretty open to this. Well, it's interesting. Everybody wants the silver bullet. They want New Relic not only to monitor, but they want it to predict and fix, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that just doesn't exist yet. If that were easy, it would already be an app on your phone and this we wouldn't be having this conversation and I'd be working somewhere else. That's, isn't that the singularity kind of thing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because as you're saying, it takes an investment of time. As you're saying, look at this stuff while it's running, not when there's an emergency. And everybody's, you were talking about outliers. Well, one person's outlier is another person's stretch piece. 
everybody's situation is unique in terms of their architecture and what's important and what their deliverables are. Interestingly, I'm almost seeing it kind of come full circle where you go back to like best practices of what's your risk matrix, you know, um, don't use your backup server, uh, your backup database to toy with it because it's no longer your hot switch backup database. Like these are really, you know, old school kind of things, but as the world becomes more complex, these sort of things become more and more important that you're um, doing best practices and you're, you're ready to take on the world as it is. And it might be self-selecting because I guess the people that aren't bought into it are not coming to the conferences or the meetups I'm going to. Um, but a, a lot of people are buying into it and um, uh, there's an interesting divide of, you know, people that are cloud native versus people that are, you know, typically at larger companies and going, oh, this migration has to happen for XYZ. And the thing I want to steer them back to is what is XYZ? Why is your company making that move? Because then you know what to measure. Then you know whether you're successful or not. You've got to have your oranges to oranges comparison. Here I'm going to measure on my on-prem system. Now I'm moving to this cloud provider. How are the numbers looking? Is it getting better? Am I getting the things I'm supposedly paying good money for in terms of I want um, better response time. I want to be able to scale. Am I getting those things? But you have to take a moment to step back and say, what are the things I'm trying to accomplish? Do I have the, you know, the scorecard of, yes, I've done it. No, I haven't. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, context is everything. Everybody wants the answer. And all that you can honestly give them is like a more and more refined a uh, version of it depends. <laughs> no, yeah, no, like if you're being honest, if you're honestly advising someone, and a lot of people just won't honestly advise someone. They'll be like, you know, this is the answer. And I'm like, you shouldn't trust those people. Um, <laughs> you can give a very strong, here's what I would recommend given your context. But context is everything. And like you just said, one person's outlier, one person's max, is another person's mm, fine. And it's someone else's norm. Like it's someone else's everyday, you know, 50th percentile, you know, and that's fine. You know, there's no silver bullet. There's no uh, <laughs> magical prediction. And honestly, um, humans are still the best pattern matchers in the world, which is why I believe that um, empowering humans, making it easy for humans to find the answer is worth so much more than trying to build elaborate software that will try and tell you what the answer was. Mm. You know, I, like it, it's, it's a, there are trade-offs involved. I think that part of the reason that developers are reluctant to participate in what they think of as ops culture is because ops has a well-earned, well-deserved, bad reputation for punishing themselves. <laughs> because they can't debug quickly enough, they page themselves on symptoms that are flappy or that aren't real problems or that are too sensitive. It has been their best practices uh, for finding important problems. And I think that what we're finding now is like with, with tooling like New Relic and like what we're trying to build, being much more powerful and helping humans pattern match. And if you can page on the health of the service 
And then, you know, if the service gets down to 75% health, customers still aren't impacted. And then have a human diagnose it within like two or three minutes. That's so much better than, you know, say paging a human anytime any node in that service goes down, which burns people out. So, Charity, take us back to the early days of Parse. And so, uh, when you were there, and you know, Parse is you know is is turning out to be one of one of the more kind of interesting stories I think of our time now because you know now we hear so much about I don't want to use the word but I'm gonna have to like the whole serverless kind of thing and partially was a pioneer in that space yep. and that was all about like helping people build applications and helping them do it in a yeah. manner where they didn't have to worry about that. Yep. So those abstractions, you guys were developing these abstractions. You know. We're doing it before it was cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm curious about your view on, yeah, you know, kind of the, the evolution of that kind of mindset and philosophy you know, through your time at Facebook and what we're seeing today. And I'm sure there's kind of some perspectives from New Relic on that as well. I I am so fucking proud of what we did at Paris. Like, <laughs> awesome. so proud. But, you know, the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, Pars too, whatever. Uh, but yeah, we, we started, and I think that um, a lot of my crankiness, let's just be honest about, about this sort of little shit on, on Twitter, is just, it's, it's not a magic bullet, like back to what Tori was saying. Um, yeah. It is a great force amplifier. It speeds up your development process, no doubt. For prototyping, even for production apps, like, let's face it, most startups fail. Almost all of them fail. And it's almost never because they chose the wrong technology. It's because they moved too slow. They couldn't iterate fast enough. Uh, they couldn't, you know, find product market fit, whatever. And Parse was one of, one of the first that really empowered people to just, like, experiment, try things. This is easy. And... We weren't perfect, believe me. I, I've seen it, the dirty underbelly of what it takes to make this succeed, and I know that um, there are trade-offs to be made. You get less visibility, you get less control. I believe in this future. I, have a, I get allergic to buzzwords, which is why serverless, whatever, but I believe in this future, I do, 100%. I believe in the future of, and, and like honestly, I decided to start this startup because I think that um, over the next few years, People are going to look at monitoring and analytics and metrics uh, the way they looked at email 10 years ago. You remember when we all used to run PostFix and Spam Assassin and like ClamAV and our own antivirus scanning and our own IMAP servers? Think of how many engineering cycles we wasted doing that over and over and over again. All of the people like my age are just like, yeah, yeah, we remember that. It was painful. It sucked. Why did we do that? Oh, and then Google Apps came along. Nobody does it now. We're just like, why would you do that? And I think that um, like the path isn't as clear yet. There's still a lot of chaos and a lot of choices. And I think that's good because there are so many different contexts that people need to, need to apply these principles to. Like there's a lot of room in this market for a lot of different approaches. Uh, but I think that over the next few years, people are going to start think, being like, wait, why are you doing your own metrics? Because you're not going to do it as well. It's going to be more expensive. You can't hire the talent to do it. The people who are experts, it is cheaper and it is better. It goes back to the, the theme sort of of this podcast show is it's faster. It's, yes. That, you know, when you take yes. 
a huge chunk of things that you used to have to deal with off your plate, then that allows you to increase your velocity. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you will. It offers an opportunity. In Monitoring, yes. It is both absolutely critical to every single company, and it is not the core mission of almost every single company, unless you are one of the few companies like us who are trying to do monitoring. So it's effectively wasted engineering. You said something really interesting, Tori, about you know, this being maybe self-selecting, right? the people that we meet at conferences who are talking about these things. I think it is, but here's why I think it doesn't matter. Because any decent engineer out there has their choice of 50 places to go work, right? The places that are doing things the way you and I are describing, oh my God, their lives are better. They get a taste of that. They're never going back to shops that don't change. Right. Ever. I think the center of gravity, like it takes a little while, uh, but it trickles out. People get a taste of it. And suddenly people are like, oh my God, my life could be better. And they start asking these questions in interviews. How do you make technical decisions? Who runs your monitoring? What are your processes around these things? This is the future because uh, the, the past life was miserable. I remember a job, you know, it's similar, I think, in the, in, in our, in the journalism world, the media world. I remember a job where I started, and this was back in the you know, 97, 98 time frame, and actually 95, 96. I was walking around this newsroom and there was a trade publication and um, I was starting, you know, this is like, I was interested in the internet at this time and, you know, it started to kind of like, you know, be much more focused on it. And they had these, uh, these ancient terminals, right? I mean, just, and I'm like, you know, are you guys going to hear any thought about, you know, updating, you know, your computers here at all and maybe have even an internet connection. <laughs> and, and the publisher said, that internet thing's a fad, you know, or, you know, or no, no way, no way. And I and was, you immediately were like, I was like, I, I don't think I'm going to be lasting <laughs> here. <right?" laughs> yep. I think there's, you know, there's the, the paradox of velocity, right? There's like this need for speed and there's this need, you know, to understanding it as well. And that kind of is one of the kind of things I get out of this conversation today. And, and you know, I could talk, we could probably talk about this for another few hours about abstractions. Cause I mean, as these complexities increase, there's always like this to strive, striving to abstract the actual processes themselves. And when you abstract those processes, then what is it that you're ending up abstracting, right? You know, and where does this lead you? And, you know, what are the, what are the, I guess, what are the, you know, what are the downsides to that, you know? And I think what it speaks to you when you talk about charity is like, is it understanding more than anything? Not just being able to like, build something very quickly, but what is it we're building? What decisions do we make to build that? And, you know, why do we do it? I'm sure, Tori, you see this all the time and, you know, with, with your own clients. Absolutely. And with kids too. I work with a group called DevOps for Kids where we're teaching them the basics of programming. And it's not necessarily to ramp up new programmers, but just to give them the knowledge, the basic knowledge about the difference between playing a computer game and building one. Because once you've built one or seen it built, then you'll never look at a game the same way again. Mm -hmm. Like you'll understand what the, you know, the thoughts that go into it and the decisions that are made. And that's really crucial. That's how you become a better consumer. Well, and I think a better 
programmer as well. You know, that's sort of the essential conflict here is we're talking about velocity. And velocity obviously is really important. If you can't, as you mentioned before, Charity, if you can't iterate fast enough, you may not be able to succeed. But it's also direction. Yes. You, know, you can go really fast in the wrong direction. And that doesn't really turn out that well very often. Yep. Just blind speed doesn't really do you that much good. You need to be going to the place that is the right place. Yeah, back to the pilot analogy, right? And it's not that easy to know. Where does craft actually come into all this? I mean, we talk about abstractions and everything else, but where does actually craft come into play? It seems like it's still a huge part of the you know, uh, you know, of everything here. When you say craft, what do you mean exactly? Well, craft in the code. I mean, if like you're like a company like Facebook that's trying to continue, you know, continue scaling out, but you're trying to think about new, you know, new platforms and new features that you're going to be adding. Is what what I've been just my conversation with engineers. Now this is where where you start to see the real true you know, the true talent in your engineering teams, right? You know, the people who are thinking about that code and thinking about, you know, how you're going to be implementing this in a way that will not disrupt, you know, this, this scale out operation that you have. So I would, I would draw kind of an analogy here, which is somewhat false, but um, maybe an interesting metaphor. So most of us are not um, genius programmers. This is not a shocker. I'm not a genius programmer. And that's fine, right? The goal here is for all of us, you know, somewhat mediocre, relatively intelligent individuals um, to be able to produce fine software right. that works. And like this kind of parallels like the, you know, the shift from like waterfall development to like the agile me methodology or like the, the ones where you're like, all right, we're not just going to like design this giant thing in our heads, write it all out and ship it and see what happens. But, you know, uh, write a piece, deliver it immediately, look at the effects, you know, Iterate. compose yeah. it, you know, write pieces and watch what happens. You, you get to learn as you're shipping. I, I'm all for craftsmanship, but I'm also from ops. So I also like, I recognize the value of a good shortcut just to kind of circle back to how it makes people better at their jobs, you know, and I feel like the next iteration of craft for software engineers is not learning Rust, learning Go, getting better asynchronous programming. It's, it's, it's learning how to understand when you're doing well and when, when, when you're introducing several regressions um, by looking at the life cycle of your code, Look, you know, watching it and understanding it piece by piece as you're, this, this is a whole, you know, continuous delivery, continuous integration. You know, it's not about just unit tests. It's also about performance and interplay with other features. Uh, I just think that it's like giving glasses to people who are nearsighted. Like it's just a really powerful tool that not many people have adopted yet that will make them better crafts. Just for the podcast audience again, all four of the participants in the <laughs> podcast are wearing glasses. So we're, we're, at, we're at a 16 eyes. Uh, God for modern technology. There you go. <laughs> Where would we be without our tools, right? Exactly. Well, you know, this has been a terrific conversation. I want to thank you all for being here. Charity, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Conversation. Good luck with Honeycomb. We'd love to talk with you more about it. And Tori, uh, great to have you on the show. You know, we've you. had conversations with you before and you, know, you guys, you're doing a great job over there with your you know, editorial work that you're doing over at, uh, over at New Relic. 
you know, so thank you very much for participating. And Fred, as, as always, uh, thanks for uh, being co-host here on the show. Always a pleasure and a pleasure for New Relic to sponsor the New Stack at Scale podcast. Great. Well, thank you guys. And we'll, uh, we'll be back again soon and, and uh, have fun in Velocity, Tori and Charity. Uh, yeah, drop by the New Relic booth and see me. I will. It was nice <laughs> to meet you guys. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.